Thank you for stopping by the Cypress Church Podcast. We are a church community who seek to worship Jesus, love one another, and serve the world. We hope you'll come away from this podcast with your hearts refreshed from hearing the Word of God proclaimed. Just a quick shout out, as we were singing that last song and praying that prayer, uh, one of the lines in that song, and I've got to try to remember to get it right, but it is, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith. We've had a group, uh, a gener- the next generation here since 5.30 this morning. They've been doing a fundraiser. They've been making lunches for hundreds of people at the AT&T Pro-Am, the golf Pro-Am. So would you just give it up for our next generation right here in the first few rows? I love that. I love that you guys are here. I love the energy that you guys bring. I love it when you pack the first couple of rows. It makes me feel good inside. It makes us all feel good. Amen? Amen. Really, really good. Awesome. The recent fires in Australia have been devastating. They've been the worst in 100 years. Many of you have seen the images like the one that is going to appear on the screen. 30 people have died. Hundreds of people have been left homeless. Over 6,000 buildings have been destroyed and millions of animals have been lost. As you can see from the map on the screen, at one point it seemed like the whole country of Australia was ablaze. Many of you have lovingly asked about my family, and if you look closely on that map on the most easterly point, the little green dot, that's where I grew up, that's where my family lives. The fires have been all around them, but they've been uh, able to get through this fire season without a blemish, so thank you for asking about them. What has happened in Australia over the past six months has been called a megafire. It has drawn the attention of the whole world. And in Acts chapter 2, a spiritual megafire is going to break out. In contrast to the Australian fires which brought so much death, this spiritual megafire brought life and salvation and blessing to many. This spiritual megafire broke out with the coming of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' church. And the flame of the Holy Spirit led the gospel, the saving message about Jesus, to spread like wildfire through the city of Jerusalem. And since then, that megafire has continued burning to the outermost parts of the earth, even to Salinas, California. When the Holy Spirit falls upon a church in our day, the same things happen today. If you have a Bible, if you'd open with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you're using the black Bible in the pew in front of you, it's on page 1,157. 1,157. Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading the whole chapter this morning, all 47 verses. And as we do, we're going to see three big picture highlights. Specifically, we're going to see three things. Something amazing is going to happen. Peter explains that something amazing by preaching the gospel 
and thousands of souls are going to be saved. With that overview in mind, let's see how this spiritual megafire begun began in Acts chapter 2. The first big picture high point of the chapter is this. Number one, something amazing happened. Something amazing happened. Let's read about that something amazing right now. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear each of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. When we ended chapter one last week, there were 12 apostles and 120 believers. And right here at the beginning of chapter two, those people were gathered in a home, a large one, obviously, in somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, most likely the same house that had the upper room that Jesus met his disciples in for the last supper. And as they were all together, we read in these verses, something amazing happened. There were three major movements. First, there came a sound, we're told. The sound was like mighty, rushing waters. Have you ever been to a waterfall before? Deafening. A sound like mighty, rushing waters began, and it says it came from heaven. Where did Jesus ascend to? Heaven. This sound came from heaven. Second, flames of fire in the shape of tongues, appeared and came to rest on each of these believers. Flames of fire, a mighty rushing wind sound from heaven. And number three, they began declaring the mighty works of God in languages they had never learned. There's a little derogatory question in there asked by the crowd. Did you catch it? Where they say, aren't these people who are speaking Galileans? These Galileans, they don't know other languages. But God had supernaturally empowered these Galileans to speak in 12 different languages from all around the known world at that point. Those 12 different languages are listed for us in verses 9 and 10. 
So we have these three major things going on. This amazing moment happening and the loud sound quickly drew a large crowd of thousands of people around the house and they were there were people from all over the world, people who spoke many different languages, and they heard the mighty works of God being declared in their own language from these Galileans who didn't know any other languages. And we're told in verse 6, the crowd was bewildered. In verse 7, they were astonished. And in verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. And in verse 12, the crowd asked the first of two critical questions in this chapter. Verse 12, they ask, as they're witnessing this amazing thing that's going on, they ask, what does this mean? A couple of years ago, I was thumbing through a magazine and I saw a picture like the one up on the screen here. It was of this structure that was just burning. And down the bottom there, you can't really see them, but there is a massive crowd gathered all around. And like any great picture, any great piece of art, I was drawn in. I saw this thing and I I, I was asking myself, what does this mean? And so I ended up reading the article that this picture was associated with, and it was all about this this, uh, gathering of people in the Nevada desert. They meet out there every year for a festival called the Burning Man Festival. And I learned all about the Burning Man Festival. (laughs) Things that I didn't even want to (laughs) learn. My point in this is eye-catching, ear-rapturing phenomenon draws attention and crowds. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 2. This great sound of rushing water that came from heaven, this small group of people speaking other languages, these Galileans, that these languages they'd never learned before, now they're supernaturally empowered to speak these languages in, so that they could speak the mighty works of God in the languages of the 12 places around the world that had gathered in that crowd. It was an amazing thing. And the, the question in verse 12 is critical to understanding the rest of this chapter. What does this mean? And that leads us to the second big picture high point of Acts chapter two. That second big picture high point is this. Number two, Peter proclaimed the gospel. Peter proclaimed the gospel. In response to the crowd's question in verse 12, the 12 apostles stood up and and Peter spoke and he preached the first sermon that we find in the book of Acts. More than that, it's the first sermon anyone preached that we have recorded for us after Jesus ascended into heaven. Up until this point, all the preaching had been done by Jesus. This was the first sermon preached after Jesus had left the earth and ascended into heaven. So it's a significant sermon. It's a doozy of a sermon. It's important for us to study it because it is a powerful sermon that God uses for his glory to begin this mega fire that we're going to see break out in Jerusalem that has spread throughout the whole earth. There's two parts to this message. I want to read the first part with you first. 
Let's look at Acts chapter 14, uh, 2, verses 14 through 21. Remember, the question is, what does this mean? And Peter says, Peter stood with the eleven and lifted his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." The crowd is asking, what does this mean? And Peter told them, this amazing thing that's going on, this is what the the prophet Joel wrote about 500 years ago. And he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. This is what the prophet Joel talked about. What did the prophet Joel write about? He wrote about the pouring out of God's spirit, the Lord pouring out his spirit. And one of the signs in verse 19 of the pouring out of the spirit that would be associated with that event was fire. And that's where we see these tongues of fire playing so much significance as a sign of the coming of the spirit. But make sure you don't miss the fact that the coming of the spirit that's signaled by the tongues of fire ushers in a time in verse 21 when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Holy Spirit was ushering in a new age where people, if they believed in Jesus, they wouldn't have to become Jewish. They could remain as they were, Jews and Gentiles the same. They all believed in Christ and there was no Jewish or Gentile distinction anymore. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved in this new age of the coming of the Spirit. Now, while tongues, the tongues of fire were a significant sign, they're not the main point of, the ch- of chapter 2. They take up the first part, they are a significant sign, but they're not the main point. There's 47 verses in chapter 2, and they take up the first dozen. The rest are all about what the main point is all about. But don't underplay the significance of the sign of these tongues of fire. I don't have time to go into a whole uh, sermon on the gift of tongues, but I'm going to tell you five things, five biblical guidelines so we can begin tracking the gift of tongues as we build our understanding of it through the book of Acts. So five brief points about the gift of tongues. Number one, 
The Holy Spirit's gift of tongues is real. I think sometimes when we read these things in the Bible, we kind of put it into the, to the realm of make-believe. No, this really happened. These Galileans who didn't know any other languages were supernaturally empowered to speak other languages that were known, these 12 places in verses 9 and 10, so that they were declaring the mighty works of God so others could hear. The Holy Spirit's gift of tongues is real, first of all. Number two, the Holy Spirit still gives this gift of tongues today. This is an operational spiritual gift today. I don't find anywhere in the scriptures where it says it's stopped. If you can find a verse like that, you can please let me know. But it seems like the Spirit gives this gift as He wills. You can see there in uh, verse, if you go back to verse 4, the Spirit gave this gift as the Spirit gave them utterance. Who's in charge here? The Spirit is. And so as the Spirit gave them utterance, they were able to speak in these supernatural, this supernatural gift to speak in other languages. So the Spirit still gives this gift today. Number three, this is a beautiful gift. The gift of tongues is a beautiful gift that glorifies God. It's a good thing. It's a good thing when the mighty works of God are spoken, it glorifies God. So it's real. It's still operational and it's beautiful. Like all the Holy Spirit's gifts, all of the spiritual gifts are beautiful. They're designed to glorify God, build up the church. These are good things. Not things, reasons for fear, unless they're abused. Number four, you don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. Some people have really been hurt by being taught that they have to speak in tongues to be saved. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. If, you, if someone tries to convince you of that, bing, 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 an alarm bell should go off to you in your mind and you should run. Come and see me and we'll talk through it. You do not have to speak in tongues to be saved. Number five, if you haven't spoken in tongues... You're not some kind of second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you are not some kind of second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. All of the gifts of the Spirit are important. All of them are a priority. All of them bring glory to God and build up the church. There's no gift. If you're not content with your gift because you want to speak in tongues, something's wrong. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. He wants us to discover what those gifts are and use them for, the, his, for his kingdom, for the advancing of the kingdom, for the glory of God, for the building up of the church, for our own edification. It's not about us. It's not about what we want to do. It's about what he wants to do through us. And if we're like, well, I don't like the gifts you've given me, I want to do the other ones. Our heart is not in the right place. The reason the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 2 is because they'd emptied themselves out in humility. Five points on tongues. Before we get really, really into it, we've got to set some guardrails for it, and that's what we've done here. But tongues is a significant sign here, but it's not the main point. So I want to move on. The point is, Acts chapter, what is tongues of fire a sign of in Acts chapter 2? 
It's a sign of the Lord pouring out his spirit. That's what Joel said. Tongues is a sign of that, but the point is the Lord is pouring out his spirit right here, right now. That's what the amazing thing is you're seeing and hearing. And that brings us to the second part of Peter's sermon. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. This is solid. This is strong biblical preaching right here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God and mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us here today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out. Out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The big question from verse 12 is, what does this mean? And Peter stands up and says, this is what Joel spoke about. This is the Lord pouring out his spirit so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And then in the second part of the sermon, he makes it crystal clear who the Lord is. Who is the Lord that he is speaking of here in this passage, that Peter is speaking of in this passage? Peter makes it crystal clear in verse 22 for everyone in that crowd, including us. Who is the Lord? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. That is a very interesting way to refer to Jesus. Whenever you see the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, that is a, an historical reference point. 
The writers of the New Testament are emphasizing he was a real man, he came from a real place, he lived in time and space. He is Jesus, that's who he is. Where did he come from? Where did he grow up? Nazareth. He is Jesus of Nazareth, a real person who lived in this world at a particular time. And from verse 22 onwards, you'll see, you'll see throughout this, the rest of this sermon, he refers to Jesus as this Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus. Look at what he says about this Jesus in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. How to make friends and influence people. Now remember with me, this is the day of Pentecost. All right, we see that in verse one. Pentecost was 50 days removed from Passover. What happened on the Passover 50 days earlier? You remember? Jesus was crucified on Passover Friday. All right? 50 days later, only 50 days, a month and a half later, Acts chapter 2 is happening. You had a mob on, on Passover Friday. What were the mob screaming? Crucify him. That mob was a whole bunch of people in the city of Jerusalem. Where are we? We're in Jerusalem. And there is a large crowd of thousands of people. There were most likely people in that crowd on this day in Acts chapter 2 who had been screaming at the top of their lungs just 50 days before, crucify him. So when Peter says, "You cru this Jesus you crucified, wow. To a group of people who actually called out, you cru uh, crucify him? Yeah, this would have hit the mark. But if you're a Christian, I want you to understand with me that when we say we believe Jesus died for our sins, we also recognize it was because of our sins he was crucified. If you believe Jesus died for your sins, you also recognize that it was because of your sins that he was crucified. There is a picture that is worth a thousand words to me from the Passion of the Christ movie. You'll see it up on the screen. Crucifixion, right? Jesus being nailed to a wooden cross. Mel Gibson, the director of that movie, only appears in one scene, and this is it. He doesn't appear, only his hand appears. His hands appear. You see his hand holding the nail, you see his other hand hammering the nail into Jesus' hand. When asked why he didn't appear in any other scene, only this scene, in doing this act, Mel Gibson said, I understand that Jesus died for my sins, and that means that my sins crucified Jesus to that cross. And I wanted to depict that in the movie, that I get it, that I understand it's because of my sin that he's been nailed to the cross. What a powerful way to depict that in the movie. 
Mel Gibson. I don't know about Mel Gibson much. I don't know him. I don't know anything about him, but I know, man, that is a powerful moment to say, my sin nailed Jesus to the cross. And if we say, Jesus, we, we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we are saying with Mel Gibson in this moment, that could be very much our hand. He, if he died for my sins, then it was because of my sins that he died. That is what Peter is saying here. So even if there were people in the crowd who didn't yell crucify him, it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. Twice in these verses, in verse 23 and verse 36, Peter says, this Jesus you crucified. That phrase repeated in these verses should cause you and me to stop and really take stock. And it's a sealer moment. Stop and think about that. In verse 32, that's not all that happened. Look at verse 32 as Peter continues his exposition of this Jesus. Verse 32 says, This Jesus, you crucified this Jesus, but this Jesus God raised up. And we are all witnesses of this Jesus, this resurrected Jesus. We spent 40 days with this resurrected Jesus we saw last week in Acts chapter 1. This Jesus you crucified, this Jesus is also the Jesus that God raised up on the third day. And then you'll see Peter quote two Psalms, two Psalms of King David. And basically what Peter's doing there is saying this same Jesus is the, G is the Jesus that uh, David was writing about. So this Jesus is the Jesus who died. This Jesus is the Jesus who was resurrected. This Jesus is the Jesus who all of Scripture is written about. And the Jesus who fulfills all of the Scripture. Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, he is the Lord who is pouring out the Spirit right here that you are all amazed at. Whoa. Look at verse 36, the climax of this catalytic sermon. It all, what, what does this mean? And who is the Lord who is doing this? Look at this. It all, it all comes together in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. I've got those words, Lord and Christ, underlined. Lord is the Roman Gentile word for king, Lord. Christ is the Jewish word for king. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, who's the king? Jesus is your king. Jesus is the resurrected king over all now. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Power. What is going on? What's this magnificent, amazing, astonishing phenomenon that we're seeing? This is the Lord pouring out his spirit. Who's the Lord? Jesus of Nazareth. This same Jesus you crucified 50 days ago, this same Jesus who God resurrected three days later, is the same Jesus who the whole scripture is written about, the same Jesus who fulfills all of scripture. That 
is who the Lord is. He is the one pouring out his spirit. This is something that's been written about for centuries by the Old Testament prophets. It's happening right now. This brings us to the third and final big picture high point of Acts chapter two. That third high point is this, thousands of souls were saved. Thousands of souls were saved. Look at verse 37 through 47 with me. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized right there. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon Every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see that verse in verse 37? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. These people who had 50 days before witnessed, most likely, Jesus being crucified for their sins. Now this Jesus who has sent his spirit was piercing their own hearts. And it caused them to ask the second critical question in this chapter. The first was, what does this mean? The second in verse 37 is, what shall we do? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn from your old way of life without Jesus. Turn from your old way of life of living for yourself, of rejecting Christ, of seeking to crucify Christ, reject, of trying to do this for yourself and surrender your life to Christ. Repent of your whole old life, surrender to him and be willing to be filled with a whole new life, whatever he wants for you. Repent, turn from your sin and receive this new life from Christ. This new life that is filled with forgiveness and love and hope and faith and praise and gladness and joy. Read through this passage and you'll see all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit are fully on display. There is blessing after blessing for those who are saved in this passage. And then he says, be baptized. 
have a public display of your faith in action. I love how strong Peter is here. Repent and show me. Be baptized, come up in front of everybody. Now think about that for a moment. Jerusalem was the city where Jesus was crucified just 50 days before. And now Peter is calling you not just to pray a little silent prayer to yourself. He's actually calling you and me out to be publicly baptized in the same city that just crucified Jesus 50 days before. There is tremendous blessing in this new life of Christ, but is it going to be easy necessarily? Will it involve suffering for Christ to some extent? Yes, including coming up and being baptized in front of everybody, the whole city, the same city that just crucified Jesus 50 days before. Whoa. Repent, he says, and be baptized. And what we see here is a bunch of people did. They were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit had tilled this soil and when they heard Peter's words and realized what their sin had done and this new life that Jesus amazingly in his grace offers to us, 3,000 souls were saved and came and were baptized that day. What an amazing revival. What a mega fire began that day. But it didn't just, it wasn't just about Peter's preaching that day. I want you to see in verses 42 through 47, the public preaching of, of Peter called, a huge, called for a huge response. But the Lord continued to add to their number in private homes. They met in public at the temple, but they, let, they met in private homes all over Jerusalem. And it says in verse 47 that the Lord continued to add to their number through the deep loving fellowship of the gospel being lived out in homes as people shared bread and broke bread together, as they gave their gifts to one another to help one another so that no one was in need. There is a practical, um, there is Jesus' command of loving one another being put into practice all over those ending verses. And when Jesus says, love one another so that the whole world will know that you are my disciples, that's an evangelistic verse right there. As we love one another, as we unite together in, and this togetherness is really put into, into practice with each other, it's an evangelistic gospel presentation to the world. As people met in homes, they're living the gospel. They're experiencing the gospel they're hearing the gospel preached, but they're also experiencing the loving tenderness and kindness and togetherness of God's people. And it's bringing more people to faith in Christ. So we wrap this up. What I want you to see in Acts chapter 2 is that there is a spiritual megafire that begins. And it begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Lord poured out his spirit on his church and it began a whole new age. Something very distinct happened on this day. The Holy Spirit began to fill people's hearts. He began to dwell in believers. This is something that people had looked forward to for centuries. It's something that only happens in our age. The Spirit has been with believers for all time. He has come upon believers for a period of time, but he has never lived inside of believers ever until this day and until now. This is a beautiful day. And I want you to see the, 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 the power of what happens in Peter's life. 
50 days earlier on that Good Friday that ended up being the day that Jesus was crucified, Peter denied knowing Jesus to a young girl. When she confronted him and said, do you know this man? You know this man. And he goes, no, 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 no. He couldn't even stand up to a young girl and identify himself with Jesus. Denied Jesus three times. Jesus restores him and builds into him and pours out into him and then reinstates him as the leader and he stands up and leads here. And here in Acts chapter two, is he timid? Is he denying Jesus here? No, man, he is preaching the gospel with confidence. Verse 29, I love it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence. 50 days before, he couldn't even say he identified with Jesus to a young girl. Here, he's preaching in front of the same people who just 50 days before were calling out, crucify him. This is a different Peter. This is Peter fully immersed in the gospel. He's seen Jesus die on the cross and he knows it's for his sins. He's seen Jesus resurrected and he's had 40 days of proof. Is there any doubt in his mind Jesus is the resurrected, anointed king? None. And Peter has been schooled in the gospel by Jesus. Peter knows the gospel better than anyone else. Peter knows the gospel with precision. But here we see Peter Proclaim the gospel with confidence. It's one thing to know the gospel. It's another thing to proclaim it with confidence. And what we see here is Peter knows both. And I would submit to you that one of the greatest issues that the American church, we, must contend with is answering the simple question, what is the gospel? I think many of us assume that everyone knows what it is. Everyone who comes to church knows what it is and everyone everywhere else knows what it is. They just haven't received it yet. I would contend to you there is great confusion about what the gospel is. We talk a lot about the gospel, but do you know what the gospel is with precision? Do you have great clarity on what the gospel is? Peter knew that there were three aspects to Jesus kingdom gospel. Jesus had schooled him in them. Three aspects to Jesus' gospel and seven elements. He unloads them throughout Acts chapter 2 beautifully. Do you know them beautifully? I want to invite you to come. We're holding a kingdom lab on the gospel in two weeks' time. February the 23rd, from 5.30 in the evening to 7.30 in the evening, we're going to be right here doing a kingdom lab on the gospel, and we're going to unpack the three aspects of the gospel and the seven elements of the gospel. We're going to help you understand the, the gospel with precision and clarity. Why? Because when you know what the gospel is with precision, the Spirit will fill you to share it with power. If you don't know what the gospel is, you won't share it with power. When you know the gospel with clarity, he will empower you to share it with confidence. When you know what the gospel is, 
1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, what does it say about the gospel? The gospel is of first importance. That means of all the things in Christianity, is there anything more important than the gospel about Jesus, the saving message of Jesus? No, there's not. It's in the category of first importance. Nothing more important. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So if we know how important the gospel is, we know how powerful it is, do we actually know what it is? Do you really know what the gospel is? I want to invite you to this kingdom lab in two weeks. We will, go, we will mine the depths of the gospel. You will come out of there with a more precise understanding of what the gospel is so that the Holy Spirit can fill you with power to share it. You will come out of there with more clarity than maybe you've ever had on the gospel. And what I'm praying is that the Holy Spirit will take you and empower you to share it with confidence, just like what we see Peter do here. He knew what the gospel was. He'd been schooled in it. But now he was experiencing it. And when you combine knowledge with experience and then the filling of the Holy Spirit, unstoppable things happen. Wildfire breaks out all over the city of Jerusalem and then into the outermost parts of the world from right here. This is the epicenter, Acts chapter 2. And if you're here this morning and you've been thinking about Jesus and seeking Jesus and you've listened to Peter's sermon on Jesus here, this Jesus who was crucified, this Jesus who was resurrected, this Jesus all scripture is written about, who fulfills all of the scripture, and you go, man, I believe. What shall I do? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you too will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you've repented of your sin and you believe in the gospel and yet you have not yet been baptized, see me after the service. I will rearrange the whole service next week just so you can get baptized. That's how important this is, that we are this kind of church, that when people repent, we give them the opportunity to be baptized, but also that they come to be baptized and don't just kind of slide away. No, the kind of belief that we have in Jesus is the kind of belief that will be baptized, even if it's in, in front of thousands of people who just crucified Jesus 50 days before. Man, that is saving faith. That is belief that is on display right here in Acts chapter two, the kind of belief that gets baptized. So if you're here this morning, you've repented and believed the gospel yet, but have not yet been baptized, come and see me after the service and say, put me down on the list, give me your phone number and I'll call you this week and we'll get it done. Okay? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the salvation of your souls, for the forgiveness of your sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for Jesus, for the humility that, caught, that led him to leave heaven and come to this earth, be born in a manger, in dirt, yet even though he was the king of glory, to live this life with all the struggles that we have, to be crucified on a cross because of our sin, 
And yet this Jesus, you, God, raised up from the dead. This Jesus now pours out his spirit into our hearts when we place faith in him and he fills us with the same power that raised him from the dead through the Holy Spirit. What an amazing gift of grace you are, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to give us the bountiful blessings that we read about in this chapter. And yet it was because of our sin Jesus was crucified. It was our sin that separated you from God and it's our sin that you forgive freely when we come to Jesus and surrender our life to him. You're a good God and we love you. And I pray for anyone here this morning that needs to step across that line of faith and say, I believe. I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to truly repent and turn from their old life without you. To believe in this Jesus who was crucified and resurrected, who fulfills all scripture and who all scripture is written about. And give the rest of their life to serving and loving and making him known throughout the whole world. We love you, we praise you, we give you glory, Lord. We wanna be the people who are declaring your mighty acts to a lost world that does not know you. And Lord, we pray for the same outpouring, thousands of souls saved in Monterey County. Lord, would you do it? And would you help us to travail in prayer until you do it? We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.
and labor to bring forth new life. Dream dreams, pursue visions, and speak of God's goodness in the words of those who would hear. And may the God who breathed life into creation be your delight. May Christ Jesus give hope to your dreaming. And may the Holy Spirit, your advocate and supporter, set your hearts ablaze with a passion for peace. And we will go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, you are dismissed. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more information about our community, please visit cypresschurch.org. And as always, we would love to see you every Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship. Have a blessed week.